0: Kia ora. I'm Ann O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. A must-read cultural critic, Roxane Gay's writing is marked by directness, intelligence and wit. She followed her best-selling essay collection, Bad Feminist, dubbed by Time Magazine as a manual on how to be human, with the novel An Untamed State, set in Haiti, her parents' birthplace. Her latest work, the story collection Difficult Women, illuminates the lives of more than 20 resilient women. Gay is also a competitive Scrabble player in the US and writes for Marvel Comics. Hear this powerhouse talent in conversation with Charlotte Graham in this special podcast. We hope you enjoy it.
1: I want to introduce our guest, Roxanne Gay, who is leading and framing the conversation on how we talk about tell stories about, think about the experience of women, the experience and the the storytelling around surviving, the things that happen to women in this society and in this world. With her writing, with her cultural criticism, and with her tweeting and public speaking, Roxane Gay has come to the fore of everything she does, whether it be fiction, non-fiction, comics, now screenwriting, and a number of other things. Her latest book, Difficult Women, is a collection of short stories uh, that really centre around the experiences of women of colour, of queer women, um, and their survival and their articulation of the things that happen to them. Her novel, An Untamed State, which hopefully we will have time to talk plenty about today, uh, goes into the experiences of a woman who was kidnapped in Haiti, but also her journey, not to recovery, but towards some kind of understanding and relation of what has happened to her. Roxanne is known to many of you as a cultural critic with her collection of essays, Bad Feminist, in which she posited the scandalous idea that people might actually be experiencing feminism and enacting feminism in a way that came off the page and actually happened in real life with all of the foibles and flaws that that entails. She has also written the comic World of Wakanda, which, I really hope we have time to talk about it because it is incredible. I believe the first black woman to write a Marvel comic. Um, and there is so much more. Her forthcoming memoir, Hunger, is already garnering rave reviews by the few people who have been able to read it so far. It comes out next month. So for all of that, would you please welcome to the stage Roxanne Gay. Um, There have been a lot of words used on Twitter in recent days. Words like queen, goddess, (laughs) the literary world's Beyonce, if the shoe fits. (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) It does fit. (laughs) Um, Do you have a name for your fans, by the way?
2: Oh, yeah, the Gagency.
1: (laughs) The is in the house. Um, (laughs) On all three levels. Um, Do you... There is a real thirst, though, for what you have to say, and it goes beyond people wanting to engage with you because you're famous and your work is well known. It seems like there's this underlying thirst, right, for being able to engage with someone who is saying something that people have not previously gotten to hear told.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think of myself as famous, but I do think that, When people read my work, oftentimes, I think they feel seen, and they feel heard, and they feel permission to be human, and to be flawed, and to admit to their inconsistencies, and the ways in which they're not quite where they would like to be, or where they're expected to be. And I think that is really freeing, because oftentimes, when you read um, work, and particularly feminist work, I have found that I feel like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to live up. I'm always going to fall short. And uh, especially with Bad Feminist, I wanted women to feel like it's okay to fall short so long as you aren't necessarily satisfied with staying in that place. And it's okay to just say, I don't have all the answers and I have things to still learn. And I think that people just find that comforting. In that time
1: since you wrote Bad Feminist, how has your thinking changed around
2: how to keep challenging
1: yourself and how to make sure you don't stay in that place.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, when I was writing Bad Feminist, I was thinking through my relationship with feminism, which had I had always been a feminist looking back, but I had been very reluctant to claim it because you know, this culture makes it really hard to say I'm a feminist. It's not a winning proposition <laughs> anywhere. And so I really for that was just my way of saying, yes, I am a feminist and This is not heretical to say. And of course, the more mature I've gotten in my thinking about and my relationship to feminism, the more I am thinking about accountability and how, yes, it is okay to be flawed. And for example, one of the things I write about in the essay Bad Feminist is my love of R&B and hip hop, which can oftentimes be very, very insulting and degrading to women. But I recognize that. Uh, and now I—I I mean, I still listen to that music. Don't—don't don't worry. <laughs> I was having a very good time in my hotel room before I came over. Um, but I also know that it's about supply and demand, and at some point we have to make that difficult choice to say, "I will not consume this damaging music. You need to make more. I will not it's something different. I will not, you know, demand this horrible supply." Um, so I am thinking about ways in which we can be human and flawed, but also accountable to ourselves and accountable to the greater good. I have two nieces, five and six, and they're very, very smart, and they believe that they know everything, and (laughs) they do. I I literally got into an argument with my niece the other day, who's five, and uh, she was like, I know everything. And I was like, no, you don't. She said, I I, I know Auntie Rox, I, I know. And I was like, no. And then I had to step back and say, Roxanne, you're arguing with a fucking five-year-old. <laughs> back up. Just walk away from this situation, because you cannot win. Um, but I think about her and her self-confidence. And I love that she's fearless. She's tiny. She's underweight. But she really thinks she's a king. And I want that to never change. And so we need better popular culture for her to consume so that she never starts to get the idea that she's wrong. Um, So,
1: What have you thought about in terms of ways that we can do that
2: other than perhaps voting with our wallets? I think a lot of it is the financial imperative, quite frankly. We live in a capitalist society and money is what talks, but I also think that uh, media literacy is one of the key things that we have to do. We, so it's OK to consume whatever pop culture you want. But it's also important to understand what it is that you're consuming. And so I think that starting from preschool on, we need to teach young girls about these messages. And young boys, quite frankly. We need to teach everyone about you know, what it is that these messages say, and what's good about the messages, and what's not so good, um, just so that people are better equipped to not internalize some of these damaging messages that were constantly sent. It feels like there's been this slightly meta twist in pop culture where there
1: is now pop culture being created about the experience of consuming pop culture, like the show, I know you've mentioned before, the show Unreal. Yes, is, absolutely.
2: What's um, not to love? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well, It's kind of getting weirder and weirder. Yes,
2: but. the first season was impeccable, and there were some show running issues between the first and second season, and you can tell. Uh, whenever you take the creator out of the loop a little bit, things get loopy. And uh, the second season was a, f- a disaster. Yeah, I almost said it.
1: But you're still <laughs> going to watch season three?
2: Uh, yeah, I'll start with season three, see where it goes.
1: OK. Yeah. Oddly niche interest, but Unreal is a, is a show about a, sh- a bachelor Type show, um, so it's about the showrunners, it's fictional, and it's about the showrunners of a bachelor type show. Um, but the woman who created the show did work on one of those shows, so it kind of explores some of those tropes of reality television. Um, do you find that, does it frustrate you the way that popular culture now pretends to have canvassed these representations but that in real life, we don't seem to have caught up. How do you mean? In terms of, say on a show like Veep, you can have a woman who, (laughs) in power, who, it's gone so much further than the surprise of a woman in power, it's like a woman in power who is incompetent, like she actually gets to be, you know, people get to be foolish or incompetent or mess up, and then in real life, you can't even get a competent woman yes. um, elected to an office like that.
2: Yeah, I th- clearly fiction leads the way as yeah. always, yeah. and you know at least we have these fictional representations. Oftentimes, it starts with that, with someone believing that it's possible. Um, you know, I always say the bar is sort of when we get to be as mediocre as white men, then we will have reached the promised land. And. That's one, I love Veep. I think Veep is a perfect, perfect, filthy television show. And, you know, that Hillary Clinton, who was the most competent woman that one could, if like you were like designing a perfect candidate for president, you would pretty much sort of grab all of the qualities that Hillary Clinton has. has and that wasn't enough. And I think it just shows that we have a very long way to go between what we imagine. Um, that we're capable of in shows like Veep and what we are capable of in the real world. Mm.
1: One of the things that I think frustrates people who don't see themselves (laughs) represented or who see themselves represented badly is that they find it hard sometimes to even access the conversation or the conversation is taking place with terms and framing that they disagree with or doesn't speak to them at all. For people who feel so far from the, the, even just the conversation, what advice
2: do you give them? Well, I mean, you can disagree with framing, and the, the reality is that a lot of discourse can be inaccessible, and it's those of us who are creating that kind of discourse need to make it accessible. But I also think that as people consuming it, and reading, and trying to sort of engage, we have a responsibility. to to figure out how to participate. You can't just say, oh, that's not for me and give up. Um, And so my best advice is to dive right in. It it can be very intimidating. And you you can definitely think, I don't have the necessary language or vocabulary or frameworks to participate. But you're not going to get them just by saying that. You have to figure out, "Okay, what do I need to know? And so it's okay to seek out help and to just start reading. I, I think reading is the greatest gift anyone can give themselves. And so I always tell people, start with reading and don't be intimidated because it's not school. No one's going to grade you. No one's going to, I mean, if they, they might talk shit about you, but that says more about, you know, that says more about them than it does about you, and it means that they're horrible, so. Um,
1: words to live by, so, actually, do you know what else is words to live by, and I would get it on a T-shirt, but it would be weird. You tweeted the other day something about the, um, that you're sick of the "when they go low, we go high" mm-hmm. bullshit. Yes. Um, stop with that and grab a shovel. Was, was Basically, that... yeah, yeah, yeah. Start digging. I yeah. mean,
2: we have this fantasy about if everyone just sits and has polite conversations and has some tea and crumpets, that will, you know, reach some sort of accord. That's not how the world works, uh, and I don't believe that we go low for the sake of going low, I I, I don't think there's anything productive that can come out of that. But this idea that we have to be nobler and better than people who are willing to do things like disenfranchise and persecute, um, that's not going to work. Silence doesn't work, and um, so, you know, protest sometimes gets messy. I, I, you know, I remember when they were uh, recently, um, Milo Yiannopoulos went to Berkeley, and Berkeley responded appropriately with a riot. And, <laughs> and people were horrified, like, oh, the property damage. Yeah, oh, that poor property. Um, you know, it's sometimes you have to get messy, and sometimes you have to break a few windows, and there's nothing wrong with that. And so I, I really am very tired of this idea that there's only nobility in, in taking the upper hand, upper road, or the higher moral ground. There is no higher moral ground right now with the kinds of things that we're up against. Mm. And that there is a sense of urgency, right? That there are people
1: in socioeconomic situations and situations of danger who, who can't
2: wait. Like, no, they really can't wait for like, dignitaries to go and have a lot of fancy discussions for 12 hours at a time when they're starving and when they need health care. Uh, when they need to be safe from violent situations, uh, so we have to make immediate changes. And unfortunately, change never happens in an immediate way. But I do think we have to understand the urgency that many people face, and um, it, you know, it's really challenging. We should dive into some
1: of the representation that you have done into of the lives of of some of those people. Um, difficult women is just packs such a punch, all of those stories together. and But they were all published other places
2: first, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Difficult Women was the first book I ever tried to sell. Uh, it was originally called Strange Gods, and then last year a book came out called Strange Gods. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't even in the same genre, but I just thought, ah, uh, let me not do that. And so I changed it to Difficult Women. But when I first started trying to sell this book, editors were like, we love the writing, it's really great stories, but It makes me want to die (laughs) and I was like yes that's exactly what I'm going for Um, I don't understand what the problem is so uh, my agent and I put it aside and I published three books in the interim and now um, I finally published enough books and sold enough books that a, a publishing house was like yeah I guess
1: you're allowed to make people want to die now. Now I yeah, am, yeah.
2: yes. <laughs> and so um, all of the stories are already published, but they're all together in this one happy, cheerful collection. Yeah.
1: But there is an odd, not even an odd, just a, a hope to it that I think just comes from getting to hear women tell stories of trauma that are all different.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, shouldn't be astonishing, but it is. When there's darkness, there also has to be light. The two cannot exist without each other. And so people always say, oh, your work is so dark. And I'm like, did you read to the end? Um, Because I think of myself as a hopeful writer. There's always this hope that there's something better after you've been through something terrible or after you've suffered an unbearable loss. And so... And there's also just hope in testimony, in being heard and being seen. And that's something that is as important to me in my fiction as it is in my nonfiction. Yeah. The title, Difficult Women, is a great,
1: is a great provocative statement. Thank but you. But people talk about the idea of, um, of unlikable women characters, which I'm so sick of, because it kind of suggests there's this yardstick of whether you would like this person in real life, whether you'd want to hang out with them in real life, when actually they're just, they're just real people. Right. And the reason that it's so odd to people that there's a whole range of female characters emerging in literature like yours is just because they haven't seen it before.
2: Absolutely, uh, You know, publishing is a strange place, and oftentimes when women write women characters who are so-called unlikable, which means that they do things that we wouldn't do, or that we disagree with. Uh, they're like, no, that's too unlikable. Readers aren't gonna go along with it. But I'm not trying to make friends with, with the characters that I read in books. Like, I'm not, and no one ever says that about like Stephen King. And I, I'm a big fan of Stephen King, but no one's ever like, ah, oh, shit, that's just not good. That, that guy is too unlikable. And no one ever says that about all these people writing serial killer novels. Again, they're not, I'm not trying to be friends. And so I think it's really important to show the range of women's experiences and to show that women don't always have to be polite and they don't have to always shut up and look pretty. Sometimes they're messy and they do ugly things and they have ugly thoughts and feelings. And I just love showing that and exploring that and just shifting the conversation from unlikable to is she interesting? How
1: do you write and negotiate the distance between the reader and the trauma and hurt that women experience? Because you have this incredible way of creating real intimacy with women's trauma.
2: I'm always thinking about what does the story need? And so it's a fine line because you never (laughs) wanna be gratuitous, but you also don't wanna shortchange the realities of trauma and so for a given story i think about what the story needs and then i go from there and uh, i think about how much of that woman's story to tell so for example in the first story in the collection it's called i will follow you and it's about two sisters who are kidnapped when they're children and this guy um a pedophile holds them for about a month not maybe three months Ugh, i haven't read the story recently um and you know i I write about it, but I don't write about the actual acts that the girls endure. Because A, it's children. And I I think that you don't need to see that to know that it's horrifying. And sometimes I think less is more. Like It's the not writing it, allowing us to fill in that space with our imaginations that is truly terrifying. Like, what are we capable of imagining? And so sometimes I do it that way. And then other times um, I look at it plainly, like in the final story of the collection, um, where it's very explicit what happens to this woman, uh, because I think people need to understand how she gets to the place where she is at the beginning of this story, which is a a letter, really, to the man she loves, where she's trying to explain why it took her so long to come around to allowing herself to be loved by him, And so you have to understand how many people told her she was unworthy of love or showed her she was unworthy of love, you know, enough so that she came to believe it.
1: Can you talk a bit about the nuance of how you write? um, You write in this way where women are powerful in their desires and in their sexuality. And there's this nuance where you do it in a way that is That is incredible, and in so much pop culture, women are defined by their desires and sexuality, but you give them power in that. Can you talk a bit about the
2: difference there? Yeah, definitely, I think the women in my stories are unapologetic about what they want and about what they're willing to do to get what they want. Um, And I think that's so important, because oftentimes women have to frame their desires around men and satisfying men or using it using sexuality as a means of appeasing men or getting something they want. And I try in uh, most of my stories to frame women's desires as what they want just to satisfy themselves. And um, the men are there, but in many ways, incidental. (laughs) And I think that's just, it's nice to just shift balance a bit and then in some of the stories there are good men in my fiction and it's more of a symbiotic thing as it should be in actual life where there's give and take and my women characters recognize that give and take and are willing to participate in it do people bring that
1: up with you
2: a lot by the way in
1: collections like this about the someone who had read this book and loved it said to me, oh, you know, but the men in it aren't all bad. And I was like, I'm pretty sure Rockland Gay doesn't care. I sure (laughs) don't. Not (laughs) even a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no.
2: It comes up all the time. Um, During the first week of press for the book in January, radio announcer after radio announcer was like, so this could be called difficult men, or uh, what about the men? I was like, what the fuck about them? (laughs) I mean, calm down. Like, people were really, really, you know, like chuffed about—not chuffed—they uh, were just like irate. To be clear, you know, they were like, "Like, what about the men? Like, what about them?" There's literally millions of other books that cater to that. So, you don't have to worry about my one little book from a small press. Relax, it's going to be fine. Um, I actually enjoyed those questions because I got to just shut them right down. Yeah. In radio-appropriate ways. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you can um, see that through stories like, I, uh, I, just, I wish we could just go through every story in this book, but we would be here all day. So, like, lock the doors. You know? um, <laughs> no when, one's leaving. It's the Hotel <laughs> California.
2: <laughs> to, like, I've had all of the answers.
1: Um, so, in stories like Baby Arm, which yeah. is so, it's, it's such a women-looking-at-women story, and the, all the women in it, us, but they're just so unsatisfied with all of the men that they work with, mm-hmm. are sexually involved with. It just almost does nothing for them, mm-hmm. and so they have this, this thing where they go and have like a secret underground fight club and beat
2: each other up, and yeah. it's fantastic. It's just this great outlet. You know, it's funny. That story started because my best friend sent me a baby arm in the mail, and I was like, okay. And so I still have it. It's a mannequin arm. It's a baby mannequin arm. (laughs) And it's sitting on my bookshelf. And I thought, that's love. Because she just understood that I like small baby parts. and (laughs) Not in a serial killer way. Uh, More in, I think babies are are delicious. I just love them. My current obsession is Assad Khaled. Khaled, rather. Um, DJ Khaled's baby. Uh, (laughs) Oh. he's chubby and he has the little rolls and so he's wearing a bracelet right now and the fat is rolling over the bracelet (laughs) i just want to eat him Uh, but when she sent me this baby arm i thought oh my god imagine these like best friends who get each other and you know they have these other women that they hang out with uh, because they have normal jobs and normal relationships and they have all this energy that they need to do something with this passion and they have a fight club, because whenever we talk about fight club, (laughs) um, it's men, you know, like, oh, they have all this aggression, but I think women have aggression too, and that sometimes it's fun to fight in this really healthy way, and then go have some chicken. (laughs) Um, In your novel,
1: An Untamed State, you, the structure of it is so fascinating to me, I have so many questions, but um, you, it's a whole nother look again at the idea of how close you bring the reader, Mm -hmm. how intimately you bring them to trauma. Mm -hmm. And almost just as vulnerable and scary and heartbreaking is how close you bring them to the aftermath of trauma, Mm -hmm. the very internal aspect of what is going on in someone's brain. Mm -hmm. How did you make the decisions around structuring that
2: story and around what you were going to tell in that? Yes, definitely. An Untamed State is a novel Um, about a a woman, uh, Mireille Jameson, who uh, is married to an American, and she and her husband and their nine-month-old son go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti to visit her parents. And while she's there, she's kidnapped, and she's held for 13 days because her father refuses to pay the ransom. Her father is the kind of guy who worries that if he pays the ransom, the kidnappers are gonna come for the rest of their family, and he's gonna keep paying, and he's gonna lose this fortune that he's made for himself. And so the novel looks at what happens to her during her kidnapping and then the aftermath where she tries to not only deal with what happened to her but with her father's betrayal which is the real issue that she's facing. Like how could this man who gave me life sacrifice me in this way? And so I thought very carefully about the violence and I was committed to being explicit without being gratuitous and I was also committed to showing what post-trauma looks like and that it's not necessarily a neat trajectory as you often see in movies and in narratives where eventually there is redemption and this place where you're completely healed. And um, So I would write and then I would write a scene in the present where she's being kidnapped or dealing with the kidnappers. And then I would realize, oh my god, there's no more air in this room. And it's so deeply traumatizing. And then I would write a flashback of her life before the kidnapping, which in many ways was a fairy tale. She had a very good life. She fell in love. They have a wonderful marriage, a wonderful child. And so that would be the way to temper the darkness throughout the first half of the novel. And then in the second half of the novel, it's the aftermath. And it's how she tries to find her way back to herself. And she does so on her own terms, uh, because everyone in her life has a lot of ideas about how she should overcome this trauma. And in the end, she um, goes to her mother-in-law's in in Nebraska. And she and her mother-in-law have long had a prickly relationship. But she knows that she can go and be there on this farm and be crazy, for lack of a better word, and try and just be herself as she is Uh, And so that was also the most surprising part of the novel was realizing where she was going to end up. But that was also the most fun part, was writing that and the relationship she develops with her mother-in-law.
1: That's so interesting that that was not the initial plan.
2: It was not. The initial plan was um, that she was gonna stay in Miami with her husband and try and figure things out. But as I was writing those initial scenes, I was like, she can't stay with him. He doesn't get what happened to her. And so she needs to go be somewhere with another woman. And she knew she couldn't trust her mother because her mother had stood by her father while this was happening uh, until she didn't. And so she goes to her mother-in-laws because she knows that her mother-in-law is just no bullshit. She gets things done and uh, she won't coddle. And she, she knew what she
1: needed and she got it. For me, that was the great love story at the heart of that book and one of the reasons yeah. that it's so magnificent is like her husband Michael is great, he's fine, like fine in all things. of yeah. the word, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is fine, Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly, yeah. Uh, he's a good guy. He, he yeah. just
2: was not equipped, and, and no one would be equipped to deal with someone coming back from this kind of trauma, mm-hmm. um, except a woman. And so that was the great love story uh, about how Lorraine goes from being racist when she first meets Mireille to, I don't want to give away how, where the relationship turns, but it turns well before the kidnapping, and then how they come to this place where they're friends.
0: Mm.
2: And yeah, just really see each other as equals. It's very beautiful. You should yes. read it. It will
1: be available outside afterwards. Um, you are, this is being adapted to a film. Yes. And you wrote the screenplay, right? I did.
2: You taught yourself to write screenplays. I did. I read a couple of screenplays, and then I wrote it. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be a movie. I don't know when. The director just got uh, a huge project um, that she couldn't say no to. And when she told, she told me last night, and I was like, oh, yeah, you can't say no to that. Think superhero. And I was like, oh. It's about time a black woman got that, and so she's going to be filming Untamed after. So it's probably going to we're going to start filming next year.
1: And you have a lead, right?
2: Yes, the lead is Gugu Mbatha-Raw. I know she's fabulous. She's a British actor. She was in uh, Beyond the Lights, Bell, um, Concussion, and she's got a lot of great work coming off coming out soon
1: any word on getting your husband, Channing Tatum, to play Michael? <laughs> uh, that is my
2: dream. You know, in TV, writers have a lot of control, and movies, writers do not. And I also knew that I don't know how to direct, and I don't want to direct, and so uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood, who's d- directing the film, is definitely open to my input, and I get to you know, go to auditions and stuff, like watch actors audition and so on. But she, she thinks that Channing is too high profile. Which is wrong. <laughs> um, but she's interested. Um, so we're looking at um, Ryan Gosling, or um, I know, it's not, don't cry. Um, or Jake Gyllenhaal to play the husband. This is your life now. It's my life now.
1: <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson tweeted you.
2: I are know. You on he for did. that he's still like. I love him. <laughs> Oh, The Rock can tweet me any day he wants. <laughs> he can do anything he wants to me any day he wants. Oh, he's just so gorgeous and so meaty and just, ah. Oh, he eats a lot of cod and That He seems disgusting. to have a nice
1: personality.
2: He, he seems wonderful. That's yeah. And I, um, I have a friend who has worked on the Fast and Furious films as a producer. And apparently The Rock is exactly as nice as you think he is. And it's rare because in L- I, I spend part of my time in LA and oh, some of these people are horrible. But once in a while they're exactly who you think they are and apparently The Rock is one of those people that is just warm and genuine and charming. And I like that, I like nice people, so. In addition to, to his impeccable physique. <laughs> <laughs> I like his personality. <laughs> To
1: take you briefly back to the screenplay, and it just feels like anything would be a horrible segue after that, but um, in terms of working out how much of the novel you wanted to translate to the screen, Mm -hmm. it sounds like a challenge for any screenwriter to take a novel that depicts in a lot of detail, acts of violence and and also the internal monologue of what happens after.
2: It was challenging. So before I wrote the first draft, uh, I sat down with Gina, and we decided which key elements of the novel we were going to include. And one of the actor, Gugu's fears was, you know, she doesn't want her, she doesn't want to be exploited and have to be like naked and traumatized on the screen. And I absolutely agree. I would never put a woman through that. And so. We have to show some of the violence, but we're gonna be really careful about it, because it's one thing to do it on the page, it's another thing to do it on the screen. And so um, we, were very, we thought really carefully about that, and we're still thinking carefully about it as we work through drafts of the film. Um, so it's about showing just enough to make clear what's happening without traumatizing the, reader, you, the viewer. You want someone to be able to sit through this two and a half hour movie, Without being like, I can't watch anymore. Uh, And so that's one of the main considerations. And then, of course, you can't include every scene. I want to because it's perfect, but (laughs) (laughs) it would be like a four hour movie. So um, it's really just deciding what are the most essential things that a reader, I mean, a viewer needs to know to really understand this love story.
1: Do you worry about getting pressure about? The ending because i think one of the greatest things about your fiction is that is how it does away with the idea of resilience and women overcoming things because the expectation that you will be resilient through trauma is just one of the most isolating and devastating things i think mm-hmm. for people who have been through trauma to experience and that's something you've so deftly stayed away from in all of your fiction is that a concern that when you take it to
2: hollywood that they say oh but it needs a nice ending Yes, of course, and you know we'll see what happens, but so far, um, the studio is Fox Searchlight, and they've been incredibly supportive of my vision, and so it's a concern, but I have a very good agent <laughs> And I also I, I, there's you know they're at Fox, but it's a smaller like uh, studio within the Fox Studios. I think that they're more interested in the story being told well. And, There is going to be, you know, there has to be a more uplift, of course, at the end of a movie, Uh, but I'm not worried. Um, There is pressure, but I think it's going to be okay. I think that ultimately we will find the right ending for the movie.
1: I was determined to talk briefly about World of Wakanda, Mm -hmm. Um, which having you and Ta Nehisi Coates, who are, you know, two of the greatest American writers writing today, <laughs> writing on a Marvel. <laughs> I think that's. It's <laughs>
2: <That's> true. <laughs> I'm gonna um, take that back with me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I, uh, having you both writing on a Marvel comic is just like, what a time to be alive, it's so great. And then the fact that you have written this love story between two black women who are warriors and fighters is just. It's so fantastic. It's so, you write such great romance in Thank you. all of your work. Thank you. I, I'm very romantic. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about um, creating that story and what you really wanted to do with it?
2: Definitely. Um, when Tanahasi emailed me and was like, hey, I've got a crazy idea. I was like, okay. Uh, and when he told me, I, I didn't understand that he meant Marvel, Marvel. And so I was like, really? And then I was like, really? And. <laughs> Uh, I read what he had done with the first arc of um, Black Panther and so I was excited to be able to tell the story of Ayo and Anika, who are two members of the Dora Milaje, which is this all-women elite fighting guard that protects Black Panther. And I just thought, oh, that's hot. Women bodyguards? Yes. (laughs) And uh, so being able to tell a love story about two women who are duty-bound to protect Black Panther, and part of their oath is that they're also willing to serve as wives to Black Panther. It rarely happens, because he likes to choose his own wife, but their are wives wives-in-waiting, in addition to being these elite uh, bodyguards, I thought, what if they fell in love with each other? I mean, come on, like, he's just a dude, like, surely they can have some fun on their own. Um, But I also wanted to make it interesting, and so at first, they don't get along, which is one of my favorite ways to come to a, a love story, and it was just thrilling. It was so far out of my comfort zone and so different from anything I've done before, and yet storytelling is storytelling, and so I got to do some action and some social justice and a lot of romance, and I found it to be just wonderful.
1: And as the series goes on, it's like the women of Wakanda kind of rise up in search of social and economic justice, and you're just like, hmm, what if that happens?
2: Exactly. (laughs) First in comics, then in the world. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That would be fantastic. Uh, But yeah, I mean, one of the things I wanted to show is that if you lead, people will follow. And so when the Dora Milaje decide that because Black Panther is really preoccupied with a bunch of other crime fighting, as one does, um, it's up to the women to sort out a lot of the issues that people in Wakanda are facing. Um, It was exciting to see them decide, yes, okay, we're gonna address these issues. We are gonna make ourselves safe. We're not gonna wait for someone else. We can be our own heroes. And that was also fun to write.
1: Uh, You have two books coming out this year. Is How To Be Heard coming out this year? No, no. Okay. Um, How To Be Heard is the book that, um, I, <laughs> I made a pact with Twitter yesterday that I was not going to mention the names of any white men in this session, um, but I, uh, there's a racist internet clown who um, got a book deal for a quarter of a million dollars with a publisher that Roxanne also had a book with, and um, she pulled her book, um, very bravely, which was awesome. And I read somewhere, got 20 or 30 offers for it. Yes, I did. And hopefully a lot more money.
2: Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I did. (laughs) Um, We actually haven't picked who we're gonna go with, but um, I've started taking meetings, which is this weird thing I've never done in my career before. But I was willing to pull the book. And the book was originally a short book, um, about 20,000 words. It was a TED book. And so now it's going to be a full-length book um, that's going to be a writing, like, um, my writing advice, hearing, you know, using your voice advice book. And um, so my agent is going to be selling it with um, an essay collection, my next book, my next nonfiction book. So we'll see where they end up, mm, so hopefully in June I'll know. Ah, oh, cool. So we have to wait slightly longer. A little it bit longer, but, but it. Yeah. I, um, HarperCollins has right of refusal. So they get to look at our book proposals first. Okay,
1: great. Um, by the way, you have, um, you've been really open in a way that's really encouraging and cool about the financial side mm-hmm. of making a living writing. Yes. Um, and that, I think, is very meaningful to especially underrepresented people who are also trying to forge away in writing to hear the actual figures mm-hmm. of how somebody does it? Is that something you're quite conscious of when you're talking about that?
2: Absolutely, you know, so many people have this fantasy that you can live off of your writing, and it takes a long time and a lot of work, and you know, I always encourage people, you need to have a day job. I still have a day job, not for much longer, but still, I, I have a day job. Um, because it's really challenging to make it all work, and I don't think people realize how small advances can be, particularly for women of color, and even when you think you're successful, the advances are still insulting, and uh, you have to figure out ways to make it work, and so I think the more writers talk about money, the more you can understand and have a realistic sense of where you might end up, because there are always the exceptions of debut novelists get seven-figure deal, but that 's not the rule that 's not what most people are doing, and we so rarely talk about money that people really think oh i 'm going to sell a book and then i 'm going to be fine, but even a one hundred thousand dollar advance you know that means that eighty five thousand dollars goes to you, and of that you have to pay thirty five or forty percent to taxes, and then you 're left with not a lot of money to live on for more that 's less than a year 's salary for many people so Uh, I think it's important for people to know that and to know that sometimes you have to have multiple income streams.
1: And you're a university professor. I am. I feel like there are people here who want to move to the United States and be in your classes. (laughs) (laughs) Well (laughs) you have one semester left. (laughs) Move fast. Um, So your Next book that is coming out in June, mm-hmm. um, Hunger, your memoir, you have had this experience of writing, of deciding on the level of intimacy that you will bring to, to trauma and to women's stories in your fiction and to an extent in your essays. How have you delved back into that whole wrestling with your memoir
2: because that's a whole book of it? Right? Yeah, it was horrible. Um, Yeah, memoir is challenging, and one of the first things I had to do was decide what my boundaries were, and then decide, okay, you're going to stick to these boundaries, because I am actually a very private person. And so it was difficult um, to write this book, because it's it's a memoir of my body. Um, And when you live in an overweight body, people project onto you all the time, they say mean things to you in public, it's just a shit show all day, every day. And so I wanted to do something with that and say, you know what, you have all these assumptions and ideas about who I am um, and how my body got to this place and I'm going to tell you that story. And so it's challenging to do that and to realize that you can take control of that kind of narrative. And and so it was just hard to write. And you're
1: at this place in your career where You're incredibly popular, which is cool,
2: Um, but at the same
1: time, people want to be able to access you and to really be able to engage with you and your work. Is that something you have to brace yourself a bit for when you have a book like this coming out? Oh,
2: definitely, because I I, I appreciate the intimacy my fans feel with me. I, I really appreciate it and I respect it. But a lot of times people think they know me because they've read my essays. Uh, and you don't, you know things that I have chosen for you to know about me. And um, I am probably who you think I am, but I'm also more. And so it's really challenging to just make sure that people understand that I have boundaries and that no, we're not best friends even though you feel like that. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The world is cruel. (laughs) But, At the same time, I'm glad that people feel, again, I'm really glad that people people can feel seen and heard. And with hunger, I'm glad that we can hopefully open up a conversation about women and weight and what it's like to truly live in an unruly body in a world that is so hell-bent on disciplining women's bodies.
1: Um, Before we move to questions, there is something that comes up a lot at these kind of events where people ask authors, like how they found their voice or how they know they had something to say. And I think sometimes it's framed as a, tell me a shortcut to becoming you know, as fabulous as you. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes it is people asking who are seeing someone who isn't normally represented, who they want to be able to find their own voice so that they can do that too. And there's a real, um, there's a real yearning in that to be heard and to be able to say the thing that they feel building up inside them. So when people ask you about how you found your voice and how you knew that you had something to share,
2: what do you tell them? Well, I generally tell them I'm still looking, but um, you know, I don't know that I found my voice, I just started using it. And I started realizing that I do have something to say and no one else might listen or care, but I have something to say. and. Uh, it's always been balancing wild insecurity and at the same time a profound confidence in the fact that I deserve to narrate the world as I see it and that it's okay to share my point of view. Um, and it, it's a work in progress. It's always a work in progress, but I, I didn't wait for permission. And I think a lot of people, when they ask that question, and I get it a lot, um, people email me, and say, you know, how did you find your voice? How can I find mine? And what they're looking for is permission to be writers. And I can't give you that permission. You really are the only person who can give yourself permission to write and to say what it is that you feel that you need to say. Um, And so I always just say, don't wait for permission. Give yourself permission.
1: Roxanne, you've been incredibly generous today. Thank you. This has been an honor and a privilege for me and for all of us. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.